Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Shawley. This is a special episode recorded live at a Times Plus event in Brighton. That applause was so loud, it was almost sarcastic. I'm I'm joined by a stellar panel. Uh, Lucy Fisher, Senior Political Correspondent of the Times. Philip Collins, uh, Times Leader Writer, Columnist, and former speechwriter for Tony Blair. And Rachel Shabby, a regular on Redbox, and Corbyn Expert. We're here in Brighton. It's the start of the Labour Party conference. The the main question we're going to try and answer uh, is, given what happened in June this year, will Jeremy Corbyn become Prime Minister? So we'll start with you then, Phil. You volunteered for yourself. Um, what's your? Well, let's start with that question, and we'll, we'll talk afterwards about the general election campaign. What, what do you think are the chances of Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister? Well, it was interesting. You, you, you changed the question from the advertised question, which was "Can Jeremy Corbyn be prime minister?" to "Will he become prime minister?" And of course, they're two different things. The, the answer to the first one is, of course, he can, because we've got a government which is horribly split, trying to do the most complex administrative task in post-war British history and it's doing it really badly at a time when there's no wage growth and all the signals point to a Labour victory in the next election. So, of course, in those circumstances, the, the, whoever's leader of the Labour Party could become Prime Minister. It would be foolish to say he can't. Now, will he? I don't know. I mean, my hunch, if I, I, obviously, I, have, I say this with no certainty at all, but my hunch will be he won't because I still think that when it comes to the contemplation of him as Prime Minister, his weaknesses will probably offset the weaknesses of the other side. But it really depends on what the government does, because if the process of leading the European Union goes horribly awry, which it easily could, then, of course, that the Tory party can't possibly win the next election. So, yes, he can. The really, really vital question for Labour MPs at this conference now is not whether he can or will, but whether they think he should, whether they want him to. Because there are MPs in this party who have essentially made it plain over the last couple of years they don't regard him as intellectually in the right place. And the question for them is, do you now renounce what you said about him? And do you think he is, in fact, a plausible prime minister? Not just as a... in. in efficiency and being able to do the job, but do you think he should be Prime Minister? And most of them, in their heart of hearts, think he shouldn't be. And so the really tough question for people of a Labour disposition is, do you want to win? 
not can you? Rachel, what do you think on the, on the, on the, the headline question, if you like? Will he become Prime Minister? Can he? Should he? Um, yes, to all of those. I think that um, two years ago, <laughs> uh, you know, the Labour Party, the leadership, the people around Jeremy Corbyn were saying, look, uh, once he is exposed to, you know, the public, um, people will connect with him and people will connect with um, his left-wing platform because actually people are already connecting with that platform. The whole um, array of wealth redistribution policies have had um, popular support for quite some time, for some years, uh, and that has been exacerbated since the economic crash because it's exacerbated the need for those kind of economic policies. Um, and they also said that once people got a chance to see him, they would connect with his leadership qualities as well. Um, now, most of the political commentariat um, completely dismissed uh, the leadership team when they said that. But actually, I think the election result showed that to some extent that they, they were proved to be right. Um, you know, during that campaign, he did come across as uh, a potential uh, prime minister. People did resonate with uh, both his style of leadership, which is very different, um, and also with his uh, political platform, with the party's manifesto. Of course, we saw that not just in the election results, but in the fact that his popular uh, approval ratings climbed during uh, the campaign. And just to um, Phil's point about uh, the Labour MPs, I think there has been perhaps a change since the election in that, you know, I, I think there's a section of those MPs who have now said, yeah, we didn't think you could pull this off, certainly not with those policies, but actually you did. Um, and we've done great out of it, thanks very much. <laughs> Our majorities have increased. Um, so yes, we do back you now as leader and we are going to fight to see you become Prime Minister in a Labour government. So I think there has been quite a significant shift. But if they thought he was wrong, why just because he did better than they thought in the election campaign, do they now think he's right? Well, I don't think they all thought he was wrong. I think they were split between those who thought these policies are terrible and also the public won't like them. And then there were people who thought, well, these policies are quite good, but they'll never get public approval. And that group of people the is bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucy, to what extent do you think the increase in support for the Labour Party was because people did see him as a Prime Minister? Or actually it was a vote against people who look like prime ministers and you know the fact he doesn't look like a prime minister the fact he addresses big rallies but then it's a bit haphazard and amateurish at times you know it's it's the fact he doesn't look like a prime minister is part of the appeal i think it is a really big part of the appeal this sort of um avuncular genuine image is a backlash to the to the spin the slickness that was new when tony blair came in and people hadn't seen that before and was impressive and the eloquence the quick rebuttals um, the, the, the very savvy media operation, I think people began to feel over time that that was so cynical. Um, and actually, Jeremy Corbyn sort of answering questions very honestly, often in ways that had journalists sniggering, you didn't, you know, thinking that, gosh, he's been caught out here, he doesn't realise that this is going to spark, you know, huge headlines tomorrow. 
he didn't care, and I think people liked that he didn't care and was himself and was saying the things that he'd been saying for the past, you know, three decades in the public sphere. So I think that there is a, a, a degree of that, yeah. Phil? I think the most important thing that Corbyn was able to do during the election campaign, which is absolutely pivotal, I don't buy the idea that it's all left-wing policies and everybody said, oh, I'm secretly left-wing, hooray. Um, nobody in the real world thinks in those terms. What he was able to do, which is a very important political achievement, was to pull in to the electorate people who had not voted before in very significant numbers. And they pretty much all voted Labour. And I regard that as his achievement. And that is a very important thing. And if you take those, we, we don't know the full details yet because everything's still provisional within numbers, but it looks like something the order of a million people voted for the first time in this election. And if you assume that they pretty much all voted Labour, that makes a difference to that election. To The Tories won that election without those people, something like 45% to 37 which was the election everyone was sort of predicting. And that group of people changed it around. But they didn't, and it's very important still to remember this, because there's a real danger this conference is a sort of triumphalist one. Labour didn't actually win. What? Labour did not win. <laughs> Don't hey. go out there and say that. They'll be absolutely furious well, I, if they well, find I out. Won't. I mean, as, as a you know, former Blair employee, Murdoch employee, I'm really popular at this conference anyway. Um, <laughs> but the one thing that could make my popularity decline even further is to point out that actually they've just lost to the most mediocre Prime Minister in living memory at a time when the Tory party's torn in two over its fixation in Europe. You still managed to lose. And that, when I mean, you look back at it in retrospect, stripped of all the thoughts about whether Corbyn was any good or not, this was an election that the opposition ought to have won because the country was tired of austerity and cuts, the, the governing party was in a terrible tangle with a prime minister who was exposed as not very good, but the opposition still couldn't win. What I would say, though, is that it's interesting, of course Labour didn't win, but they've been behaving like they did win, and I think that they have... They are increasingly projecting uh, a credible image of a government in waiting. Uh, and conversely, the Conservatives, although they were the largest party and have sort of formed this slightly shaky um, minority government, they're acting like they lost. I mean, the arguments they've ceded, it certainly feels to me like the narrative is really in Labour's ballpark. They're saying, you know, austerity, it's not an economic necessity. It never was. It was a political choice. And frankly, the Tories are playing to that tune now that they're saying, oh gosh, yes, um, well, we will find money for, um, you know, to, to remove the pay cap uh, for certain sectors uh, in, in the public sector. Um, so it certainly feels like Labour's on the front foot and advancing. So as to the question that this whole session is around, you know, can Jeremy Corbyn become Prime Minister? It, it feels like he is, he is on the attack while the Conservatives are, are retreating uh, and not making the, the arguments that, that boost, you know, fiscal responsibility, you know, a low tax uh, economy and, and austerity. But just to, I mean, I completely agree with that. I mean, I think it's very clear that the Conservative government is, you know, as, as the phrase goes, they're in office, but they're not in power. Um, and Labour is very much controlling the agenda, um, bringing to the table things like austerity, ideological austerity cuts, exactly as Lucy says. But just to rewind a little bit, because I, I do think that, you know, the left-wing pivot is actually quite important. I don't think we should be trying to underplay that. Nobody... Um, defines themselves as left-wing. Clearly, when the public is polled, most people think they're in the middle. Most people define themselves as centrist. At the same time, the majority of the population support left policies that would be described as left-wing, 
such as renationalization of the utilities and energy companies, um, massive investment in infrastructure projects, uh, corporate rising of corporate tax levels, uh, chasing after tax avoiders, and a higher rate of tax for high, highest earners. Now, those and, and funding the welfare state, those things are clearly left-wing policies. Um, they have majority support, and at the same time, people don't consider themselves left-wing. So when we put all those things in the mix, clearly it is relevant that the Labour Party did pivot left. And we do have to remember that the Labour Party, until Corbyn, was very much in the same trajectory that has been going on across Europe, which is the decline of the left. And I would say that it has revived itself because it has tacked left. The most important policy the Labour Party had in the election campaign was a question on which they had no policy at all, which was the European Union. It was an act of inadvertent strategic genius that nobody understood what the Labour Party's policy on the European Union was. And I say that was genius because that permitted people who had voted leave, of many of whom were Labour supporters, to think that it was safe in Labour's hands and they could, they could vote with their usual heritage as, as a voter and vote Labour. But by the same token, those who wanted to thwart the process, who had voted Remain, felt that the best way of attacking that process was to vote Labour. So the fact that nobody had the first clue what Jeremy Corbyn thought about it was in fact magnificent. So the, his great ability is his fabulous vagueness. And again, this is a compliment. It, there's, a, there's, a, there's a period when all politicians have this ability to, they're like a screen on which you can project your hopes and thoughts. And Blair had that for a while. And people project certain things onto you that you've never quite said, but you've never quite not said them either. And Corbyn had that, and still has that to some extent. And in that period, you are immune from criticism. And it's not that people make fine-grained judgments about your policies. It's precisely the opposite. It's that you float above them, like in this kind of you know, fairyland. And it lasts for a while. And I wonder how long it can last, because increasingly we're going to have real concrete events in the European question, and Labour will have to take up positions. And as it takes up positions, inevitably you break open the coalition. You've, you've found a coalition on nothing, and then you break it when you have something. But I, I think you're absolutely right with what you said, but I think that actually the genius is Labour doesn't, isn't going to have to be pinned down on the European question because it, you know, it's in the government's hands what they do. They can just continually attack the government without ever really spelling out what their own views are. And occasionally you'll have outriders. You know, this summer, Barry Gardner you know, went rogue in The Guardian um, and was you know, slapped on the wrist. And you know, interestingly, he now doesn't have a speaking slot at the conference. Um, but I just, I, I, oh I think it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think the interesting thing is that, that, that Labour can carry on just, just fudging the issue, which is not in the national interest, but is certainly in the interest of and party actually, unity. If, if, if the Labour Party did what the Westminster political establishment thinks they should do, it's basically come up with a shadow Brexit policy from top to bottom with all the T's crossed and I's dotted. And they don't need to do that. They just need to oppose the bits which they think that, you know, it, they, they seem to be in a position where they backed triggering Article 50, but now oppose the process of uh, uh, enacting it with the EU withdrawal bill. And nobody seems to mind that. Because yeah, but Europe is acting to split the Conservative Party, but unite the Labour Party. So Europe is a cover at the moment for a split which is still there in the Labour Party. And once the European issue goes away, which it seems like it never will, but one day it will, because we'll leave the European Union. Oh, I hope so. So do I. Just so go, I. just talk about yeah, something else. Exactly. My only reason for voting for Remain was it's so boring, I didn't want to have to talk about it. Um, <laughs> and look 
And look where that got me. I know. <laughs> exactly. Stop I know. About exactly. Sorry, I will stop. Um, <laughs> because it will go away when we leave, in the sense that politics will have to then become about something else. And at that point, the Labour Party, lots of Labour MPs will be thinking, oh my God, I found myself in this party run by people I don't agree with. And I haven't got the cover of this massive overarching issue, which is dominating everything. But, but again, I think, I think, you know, on the Brexit issue, I think you're absolutely right that they don't need to put forward a shadow cabinet Brexit blueprint. Um, I thought they were but, setting the agenda, but they do, I thought they were defining everything. But they do, hang on. So they don't have hang to have on, a policy. Hang on, Phil. But they do need to, but they do need to um, hold the government to account on Brexit. And I think, obviously, they um, approved, you know, so their position is, we accept the referendum happened, people voted to leave, we now have to leave, hence voting for Article 50. But that doesn't mean that we're now going to sign off on every mad thing that the Conservative government wants to do. Um, and what's interesting to me about uh, Brexit um, in terms of the Labour Party is that one, it clearly is controlling the agenda, Phil, because the transition agreement uh, that the government has agreed the gov that the government has agreed was something that the Labour Party was suggesting it for years. But the other thing agreement. is, the other thing You're is that you're kidding yourself. Please stop talking about Brexit. Honestly, the other thing <laughs> is that <laughs> businesses are obviously, and by business I mean you know small businesses, medium businesses, you know. This country is made up of um, companies and businessmen, right? Businessmen and women, they're all worried about the Conservative government and its vagueness and its damaging view of Brexit and are increasingly turning to the Labour Party, which at the same time, which at the same time has much better relations with European counterparts um, and is therefore much better placed to negotiate a Brexit. So actually, I think their position is, you know, they've placated, they've placated leave voters by reassuring them that, that the referendum will be respected, but they've reassured Remainers by making it clear that the Brexit policy will be the least damaging. You, you proved my point. I, I only, my only point was Labour. I don't know if you meant to, but you did. My, my point was that Labour managed to hold it all together by having no view, and that's exactly that's what you just no said. That's not no view. That's a that's well, that's a strategy. An incomprehensible so, view. Then. Lucy, at the general election this year, there's this sense that uh, Jeremy Corbyn created this quite amazing coalition of people who always vote Labour. Uh, people who wanted him to be Prime Minister, the sort of momentum, the, new, the newcomers and uh, people really caught up with the Corbyn project. People who didn't want him to be Prime Minister but were angry at the Tories. And Remainers who thought this was the way to stop Britain leaving the EU. That, that's not a coalition that he can keep together forever, is it? Well, it, it depends. And I think a lot, you know, you know, it's a very basic thing to say, as far as I'm concerned, people vote with their wallets. And actually, the, the, the main thing that really had people voting for Jeremy Corbyn is they looked around and thought, well, if they work in the public sector, seven years of pay freezes or restraints, you know, whether you're a student or perhaps even a parent or grandparent, and you're looking you know, at people entering university now, coming out with you know, 
up, up to kind of 45 grand's worth of debt, looking at paying up, up to 150,000 pounds over the course of their lifetime, the housing <coughs> crisis. There are just huge structural problems in the economy and um, intergenerational unfairness that I think was a, was a huge driving factor for many people voting for Jeremy Corbyn. And the key statistic, which I keep coming back to, is, is the <coughs> crossover age from which the majority of people vote Labour to the majority of people voting Conservative changed from 34 years old in the 2015 election to 47 in 2017. And that, to me, if that continues to, to, to rise, um, then, then you know, that could sweep Jeremy Corbyn uh, into number 10. And, and I, I don't know what the Conservatives can do to really, to really stymie that problem. You know, they're, they're talking about building 266,000 homes a year, about that there might be some movement um, in the budget this year on tuition fee and student debt, but I just can't see them making enough progress on these really key issues. And there's always a risk that, that in the end voters will say, well, why go for the half cuts in fees if Jeremy yes. Corbyn's offering you the full... While we're um, on the subject of uh, figures and numbers, where's Joe Twyman from YouGov? Right at the back. Joe's from YouGov. YouGov uh, do lots of polling for the Times, and actually they had this famous poll a week or so before the election. Yeah, ten days before the election, saying that a hung parliament was a likely option. It's um, fair to say that wasn't met with universal acclaim when, it, uh, <laughs> when we published it. Um, and, but, and actually, a lot of the seats, because you did a seat-by-seat -seat analysis which looked at, based on demographics and how people were saying they were going to vote, and there were lots of seats which you said were in play, and people said, don't be ridiculous, of course Labour isn't going to win Kensington and Canterbury won't change hands, and actually that's, that is exactly what happened. Uh, yeah, when you look at seats like Canterbury, it really illustrates the issue that Lucy was talking about, but also the issues that Labour faces moving forward. Uh, because Canterbury is a, a, a town dominated by younger Remain voters. Uh, and to win something like that is, uh, is a great coup for Labour. But next time around, winning more votes in places like Canterbury... Is not, going to, uh, is not going to help. Uh, what we don't know about all of this data, and this is getting a bit technical, so if you all fall asleep, I am very sorry, but we don't know whether it's what political scientists call a period effect, an age effect, or a cohort effect. In other words, as people get older, will they turn to the Conservatives in the way that supposedly they used to, uh, or will they stick with Labour and, uh, and stay with them because they've been won over, or is this just an unusual moment in time uh, that, uh, that signifies that? The one bit of stats that I think will be of most interest to you guys is we actually ask who would make the best Prime Minister uh, and give people a choice between Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May. Now, it won't surprise you to hear that from this time last year, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, Ratings have improved remarkably from 18% to 30% now, catching Theresa May up, and she's only on 37%. But neither of them are doing particularly well. What's interesting about that is among those people who voted Labour in 2017, 29% say they're not sure who would make the best Prime Minister out of the two. Compare that to the Conservatives, only 15% say Theresa May. It's worth pointing out, though, that that won't be the question when we come to the election. There are two big moments in this parliament that we know of. One will be when we leave the European Union, which I think we will. And the second will be, and it's probably coincident with that, when the Tories have the opportunity to change their leader, which I'm sure they will. Now, there's no good answer to the question of who will be the next Tory leader, because if there was a good answer, that person would be the Prime Minister already. Apart from the fact we're going to answer that question at our Red Box event in Manchester next week.
Uh, well, yeah, we are. Oh, well, I won't reveal the answer then now. <laughs> um, but just to say that they've got a moment to try and change the political landscape. And so Mr Corbyn will have a new opponent with all that implies of freshness, etc. It may not be a good answer, but it'll be different by then. Well, it's interesting what Joe was saying, this idea of if the, we do go a full five-year parliament, the, if Labour can bank the young people they got this time, plus people who are only 13 now who will be 18 and able to vote then. That, that then becomes a sort of baked-in generational change. Yeah, I mean, definitely, um, very generally speaking, uh, you know, the demographics are in favour of progressive politics because as more young people come of age, young people tend to have more progressive values on things like uh, immigration, um, wealth redistribution and so on. Um, but I think that what we're missing in this conversation is that there has been a societal shift, um, that people are ready for a different kind of politics. Um, and, it, and it might not be what we think it should look like, and it might not be what we think a leadership should look like, um, but, it, but it is uh, having an effect, that people are responding to uh, uh, what, what Jeremy Corbyn and his team are bringing to the table. Um, and that, crucially, you know, it's not just what we would expect to be, like you know, the usual suspects, it's most people that are feeling the effects of um, the economic programme that, that the Conservative government has put us through. And it's not just the poorest in society, it's most of us. Most of us are feeling the effects. Um, so we are ready for a different kind of politics. And, you know, as, as a nation, we're ready for uh, a government that does want to invest in infrastructure, that does want to invest in a digital future, that does want to stop the economy from stagnating, that does want to make us more productive as a country. Uh, we're not at the moment. We're lagging behind for no reason. Um, and I think that what's interesting to me is that since the election, you know, that has brought business to the Labour Party. And again, I don't mean the sort of handful of corporate donors that fund the Conservatives. I mean, you know, businesses across society. And they are even coming to the Labour Party. Even, even at the conference, yeah. there are businesses and lobbyists and public yeah. affairs people here well, in a way. But in a way that a year but in a way that a year ago or two years ago they were question, can yeah. Labour win? Yeah. They've suddenly thought, well yes they can, we better go to their conference. Yeah. But I think it's also the idea because this is some magnificent change. No, it's but just, I think it's also because perhaps, perhaps, but I think there's also a calculation that actually, yeah, the Labour Party might raise corporation tax to um, not even bring it in line to the terrible red terror days of 2011 where the Conservative government had it at 28%, not even there. But actually, we're prepared to pay more corporation tax if in return we get a government that wants to invest in infrastructure, that wants to upskill the workforce, that wants to um, make energy cheaper because obviously we're going to grow as companies under an economy that does that. So I think there is that calculation being made now. Just, just before we come to questions, do you think that Jeremy Corbyn personally is up to the job of being Prime Minister? Because we've seen uh, he sometimes isn't totally across detail. He, people say, and this is part of his appeal and his charm, but he's not big on meetings or, uh, you know, 
his team deny it, but this idea that sometimes you used to like to have a day off in the week if you did Andrew Marr on a Sunday. Do you think that being a Prime Minister is a really tough job? Do you think that he personally is up to that? I mean, I think he's proved um, a lot of things in the last two years, not least stamina in being able to see off the level of uh, opposition um, that he faced. Um, and I, I do think that uh, he has kind of cut through that kind of almost a sort of bias that we have just in our perception of what leadership means. You know, what, what does electability, what does leadership look like? Um, he does bring a different style. And I think that that style has sort of proved itself um, in the last couple of years, but and as, certainly during the campaign. As an, as an opposition leader he has, rather than making a decision about a drone strike against an ISIS terrorist or ordering troops but on the street. why do you or... assume that he's not capable well, of doing that? Because he can sometimes look like he, he would rather avoid a difficult decision than uh, make one. Yeah, I, d I, don't, I don't... I think that's a perception thing. Again, I think once you're Prime Minister, you do what needs to be done as Prime Minister. He's changing, isn't he? I mean, look, at the, this morning, his you know, refusal to be clear on illegal strikes, for example, classic politician answer of the kind he wouldn't have given some time ago. Look at the way he looks. I mean, he's really smartened up in, in the way he wouldn't have... He would have thought that was a capitulation to politics. I think I agree with Rachel, actually, about this, because I think that if you think in conventional terms the way the job of Prime Minister is normally done, is he up to that? Well, no. He, he, that, but then he won't do it that way. He won't do it that way. It, sometimes some people redefine the way a job is by the way they do it. So his task would be to do it his way and for people to accept that that's an OK way to be Prime Minister. So I think if we're thinking that kind of... Prime Minister involved in everything all the time, relentlessly, then no, he's not going to do that. But that doesn't mean to say that, therefore, you can write him off and say he can't do it. I, th I think it's slightly brushing under the carpet the, the lack of grasp of detail, though, because today he didn't fluff any of the lines on yeah. Europe that, that betrayed his lack of real understanding about just what membership of the single market and the customs union mean. But he does often say things that people who know these details inside and out are left gobsmacked by because they show that he doesn't understand not even the most complex into the weeds um, details that sort of uh, apparatchiks sort of based in Brussels have been grappling with for decades of their careers, but sort of the, the, the basics uh, of the complex debate that is the most important challenge facing our country. So Not to I discredit actually, that, but we have an actual Prime Minister who's completely incapable of understanding the detail. So she doesn't say factually incorrect <laughs> things in interviews. Well, that, but again, she's that's trying an to, assumption. She's trying to hold, perhaps hold, perhaps uh, she really doesn't understand it, so, it and some, really isn't suited is, to the job of guiding us through Brexit. Sometimes Jeremy, factually Jeremy does an interview about the EU and he says the line on the single market and there's a follow-up question and he says something which in his head sounds a bit like what he said in the first answer but is just committed to staying in the single market or, yeah. or not. So this is what I mean by redefining leadership. You just say any it old thing. Matter. It doesn't matter. It turns out not I mean, that many right. watching com Andrew Marr. He's completely ignorant. I mean, he's the most ignorant politician but to hold that office uh, that we've ever had. But for the moment, it doesn't matter. Wow. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> Let's open it up to questions. If you put your uh, hand up and uh, maybe tell us where you're from, if you're, you know, if you're from Brighton or from further afield, and a microphone will come to you. So who's got the f- first question, lady there? Good afternoon. My name is Ruth Eads. I come from Hornchurch. Should Jeremy Corbyn become Prime Minister, do you actually think Diane Abbott will be our Home Secretary? There's some light sniggering. Uh, <laughs> In the room. What do you think, Rachel? Do you think, do you think that they actually... And there's, I think there's an interesting question about if he'd had a, di- a stronger shadow cabinet team around him, whether they would have done even, even better. Because there's one thing, of all the incompetence of the Tory campaign, even Theresa May knew to keep mentioning Diane Abbott every day for the last week of the campaign. And it was quite clearly a... And in the end, they did remove her from her job for a well, couple of days. The Conservative Party worked out that... Um, attacking Diane Abbott would feed into all the racism and misogyny that she's had piled against her. You know, she's received 50% of all the attacks. No, of course, and that is appalling, but, but not equally bad, but bad is for the Shadow Home Secretary to go on the radio and make an announcement that she was going to pay police officers £30 oh, a year. I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, it's OK for um, Shadow Cabinet members to get statistics wrong. I'm saying that there's a different measure so Phil Hammond got lots of things wrong. David Davis got lots of things wrong. They were not subjected to the same level of ridicule uh, that she was. Phil? I think the current cabinet is the weakest in living memory, and it would be beaten by the Labour Party for that title if uh, the Labour Party were to win the general election. I think Darren Abbott would become uh, Home Secretary, and in a sense I think she should, because I think those people who have been loyal to Corbyn throughout this period deserved the right to stay on, and I was opposed to him bringing back all those people who, who resigned. They resigned, well, tough, you're out of it. You serve your time out in the normal way. And so you, you know, your Barry Gardeners and your Diane Abbots, well, they, they were there, they did the hard yards, and the, you know, the not-quite-victory is theirs. So I suspect she would be made Home Secretary, and uh, I leave you to conclude whether you think that's a good idea or not. When you look at some of the Shadow Cabinet, they were only elected in in 2015 and already kind of been holding down jobs. Angela Rayner, the Shadow Education Secretary, 
actually done a pretty phenomenal job getting to grips with the way the commons works. Even as a backbencher, it can be quite archaic um, and obstructive. Um, and I think that there is um, that there is some talent there. Um, but no, is is Jeremy Corbyn is Labour making the best use of all the talent in their in their ranks? Certainly not. But um, I agree with Phil. It's, it's it's a difficult line to to for Jeremy Corbyn to tread because many of those people sort of wash their hands of him and sort of flounced out and yeah he's probably right to show loyalty to those people that stuck by him it is politics at the end of the day so um so we'll see and he, he surely got a sense of humor when he brought owen smith back <laughs> and then made him shadow northern ireland secretary yes <laughs> i've got a job for you owen yeah. uh let's take another question who else has got a question a man in the back there uh, lee hats i'm from southwark where, where the times is now I, I just wonder should we bear in mind that um if Labour won an election, a sudden election next year by two seats, would Jeremy Corbyn be called to the palace? If he is, he can't answer yes to the question, can you form an administration that holds the confidence of the House of Commons, because he doesn't have the confidence of the Parliamentary Labour Party. And, I mean, I ask this with two things in my mind. One is that I can think of two MPs, and we know there are more, um, who have vowed to make sure he is never Prime Minister, and if there's a vote of confidence, they won't give it to him. Um, and also, in 1963, I can't remember all the details, but, but Sir Alec Douglas Hume, who was called to the palace, that morning he wasn't sure he could answer yes. So we've sort of been here before. I think in the event of an election, some of those MPs that, that you've got in mind might not stand. I think what might happen is the, com the problem disappears by the fact that those people who think that way just think, I cannot go into a general election arguing that this man should be Prime Minister. There's quite a lot of Labour MPs who went through the last election saying, vote for me here because it's not really a vote for the Labour Party to win. You're just voting locally, you're not voting nationally. Now, that was just about plausible. It's dishonest, but plausible. It's not plausible anymore. So, I think that some of those people might not stand. Therefore, the problem that you are postulating may diminish. But if it happens, if it's really that tight, I think there are people who would not withhold them. But can you imagine the sort of lifelong calumny that will come down upon them for refusing to put through a Labour government? But we could have a constitutional status if it's that tight, yes, we could. It's, it's possible. It's hugely unlikely. I think it's also hugely unlikely we'll have an election that soon. There's one thing the Tory party is united on, which is the desire not to have a general election. Lucy, there's also a question about, given how close the last the uh, election was this time around, and the really lucky uh, ones among us were in Bournemouth this week, or last week with the uh, Lib Dems, that actually we could end up in a situation where maybe either party could form a, either two of the main parties could form a government, but only with the support of a, you know, the Tories and the DUP or Labour and the Lib Dems. The, the maths isn't necessarily going to be as clear cut as, it's still a big leap for Jeremy Corbyn to win a sort of decent majority, given that he's basically got the same number of seats as Gordon Brown did in 2010. Yes, I think that's a, that's a really key issue, actually. The electoral arithmetic really stands against Labour. Um, unless the SNP just imploded sort of almost overnight in the next couple of years and Labour swept sort of 50 odd seats in Scotland, it's really, really tough to see how they could uh, sweep a majority. So I think, you know, the prospect of Jeremy Corbyn uh, winning, Labour being the largest party at the next election is possible, but an outright majority um, it, it is very tricky to see. And then you come back to the, some of the questions we, we sort of um, grappled with in the 2015 election. 
well, you know, would Jeremy Corbyn go into a coalition with the SNP, you know, breaking up the union? Sort of, it's, it's difficult to see how that would fly. The Lib Dems, well, you know, all, all, all 11 front, front benches and one backbencher. Um, it's sort of barely <laughs> worth sort of bothering with the compromise that, that would um, have to ensue from that. So uh, I think the, the maths are really, really tough for Labour. Rachel, do you agree with that? And actually, going back to the question, for a Labour MP, even one that really disliked Jeremy Corbyn, to, in their hearts, install a Conservative Prime Minister instead is a big leap. They might want to stop Jeremy Corbyn becoming a Prime Minister up until that point, but if, yeah. if the math was in that hypothetical that close, installing a Conservative over your own party is a, a tough question. Yeah, I mean, I think Phil's right on this, that um, you know, the problem is likely to sort itself out in the, event, in the event of another election, and that to prevent a Labour Party from coming into government when you're a Labour MP would be a, I mean, that would be a seriously off thing to do. But in terms of the <laughs> numbers, way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <Naughty>. the non-sweary <laughs> way of saying it. But the, the, um, the uh, calculus, I mean, I think what was interesting about this election is that it put a lot of, a lot of Conservative seats are now marginals. So the arithmetic has changed somewhat. And what we've seen the Labour Party do, and this is what Corbyn spent his summer doing was um, campaigning in, in new marginals, including Amber Rudd's seat, including Boris Johnson, right? Um, so including Anna Subri. So there's lots, the, the calibration has changed. And when we look at what um, Labour did in terms of grassroots campaigning, you know, it did have the capacity because it's got such a huge membership now, 570,000 members, all of whom can be now recruited to go and campaign for the Labour Party. And that actually has a pretty phenomenal effect. We've seen on the ground that, you know, those people, they did go out into marginal seats. Um, they did campaign. They did engage in doorstep conversations. Um, and that clearly did have an effect. So bringing that force out into the seats that are now precarious for the Conservatives could have an interesting result. Just we take another question. Do you think... Jeremy Corbyn can keep this up, this sort of rolling national tour. And does, is there a risk of sort of fatigue? He can't be on a war, an election war footer for five years without people thinking, oh, I'm not going to another one of these. No, I think that's all rallies. he can do. Yeah, I think he enjoys it. Of course, he, it can. Of course as well. he can do. It. He's, He's like a rubbish Bob Dylan. Well, no, no. Well, <laughs> I mean, he. I suppose my question was more. He personally would. You really don't sound bitter and cynical at <laughs> he, all. Phil. He personally <laughs> would keep going, but whether or not you can keep the momentum with a small M, the sort of Corbyn yeah. mania. Can you keep that up for five years? I think that's a really good question. I mean, can you sustain that for five years? And also, would you want to? You know, like, are you going to still have rallies four and a half years into this five-year government? What's that going to look like? But I think you're right that he is energised by it. And he's always said that he's that kind of leader, that he's very much a leader that is representative of people and wants to engage with people. But I also think, obviously, they're going to need to do other things on top of that. It can't only be rallies. And we're starting to see the sort of things that they're doing. Uh, with John McDonnell, for instance, today, challenging the Conservative Party to um, you know, uh, change the interest rates on student loans or put forward a, a fair policy on student loans that the Labour Party would support that. You can already see in Westminster 
that the uh, party is challenging yeah. government in the way that it's already doing on the streets nationwide. And what's interesting about that is just we've seen maybe the last six months, 12 months, the Labour Party machine at the set has got its act together. They know about how to use... In the end, there was some debate about it, about Angela Rayner's motion on tuition fees. They'd found some archaic way which might have made it binding, and they're, they're using the tools at their disposal to put pressure on the government in a way that 12 months ago they weren't even turning out for their own debates and motions and that sort of thing. I, was gonna say, I also think it depends on when you think that there's going to be a general election. I, I don't think it will be um, that the Tories will have the full year five term. I think there will definitely be an election as soon as Brexit happens in 2019. So the prospect of actually oh 18, uh, <laughs> 18 months of being on the road, to my mind that sounds it's doable. Yeah, do. It's in reach to kind of keep people energised. Let's take another question. My name's Susan Gasson. I live locally. Uh, and you mentioned that there were various MPs that said, vote for me, you're voting for me, not for the Labour Party. Well, in Hove, we've got Peter Kyle. Um, and that was very much the case there. He's popular, people like him. There's a very large um, Jewish community in Hove, and a lot of them voted for Peter Kyle in spite of the fact that he was Labour and Jeremy Corbyn was the leader. Now, he is in danger of being um, deselected. And I think a lot of other Labour MPs in his position feel, fear the same thing. Should momentum get his way, and that happens, do you, th do you think that the whole machine will come tumbling down? Come the next election, people will not want to vote for them, and then Labour will just disappear again? Lucy, you spend a lot of your time trying to get to the bottom of what's going on inside the Labour Party and taking control of committees and all that sort of thing. Is talk of deselection seems to have gone slightly off the boil since the election, or well, was that it, just they're well, just doing it more quietly? I think there's a sense at the present time that um, they didn't, you know, because the party had a strong election, stronger than expected election showing, uh, and that they wanted this conference to look like a government in waiting and talk about policies. I think Labour's been actually, for the most part, quite canny about not uh, engaging, sort of becoming completely engulfed in internal navel gazing rows about its own internal rules. Um, but as for this issue, I do think it's going to come back, and uh, sort of centrists will call it deselection. People on the left talk about um, mandatory reselection. They talk in the vocabulary of accountability. Um, uh, you know, confirming every election that you're still happy with the representative, or leaving the field open for other people to come in. And uh, what Jeremy Corbyn sort of, uh, sort of announced to his National Executive Committee last week, the idea of this big review on democracy in the Labour Party, democratising all the structures, um, I think that's all part of the same thing, and that is coming down the line. And I think that's what we'll all be talking about at the party conference next year. And I think the mood music, to me, seems it's just inevitable now. The left is in control of the levers of power in the party. The membership is vastly left-wing. And I think people will, will think... Yeah, you know, should I have a vote on confirming that this local representative is still the bloke I want? Um, yeah, that sounds fair enough. So I think it's there are different kind of spins you could put on it, but um, I, I think it is going to happen personally. And there is always a question about the value of personal appeal. You know, MPs always like to say, "Oh, at least half of the vote is me personally," and that's what all the Lib Dems said before 2015 that they were going to be okay because they'd got a uh, big local personal appeal. And actually, you know. Peter Carl's majority went up massively, like lots of Labour MPs, and he might begrudgingly admit it, but a lot of that is down to the, you know, what happened with Jeremy Corbyn and the, the National Party. I mean, Peter himself would, would not begrudgingly admit it. He yeah. would admit it. Um, he also is 
if there's one MP who does have a personal vote, I do agree it's Peter Carr. I mean, he's a friend of mine. I think he's a brilliant politician, and he's under severe threat of being deselected, and he fears it very much. Uh, they've been trying very hard to get rid of him in Brighton. They didn't want him in the first place. Um, sorry, in Hove. And so he, he is under threat. I mean, I bow to Lucy, who knows a lot more about the internal workings than I do on, on all of that. I'm sure you're right. It's, it will come back next year. Um, above and beyond the fate of a, an individual person like Peter Kyle or the others who would be, it raises the question of whether it shouldn't happen. Because the Labour Party is a very unfragile coalition of people who genuinely don't agree with one another. And there are different principles at stake here. And we always draw the lines between parties at certain arbitrary points. But are the lines drawn correctly? Would it not be better for the Labour Party to split into two? Why should I be in the same party as some people like Jeremy Corbyn's team? I, don't, I simply don't agree with them on some really basic things. And that is a difference of principle. And we could have an amicable difference of principle, but it's made not amicable because we're fighting, you know, it's like academic politics, it's so vicious because there's so little at stake. We're, <laughs> we're fighting over control of this institution Whereas if we weren't fighting over control of the institution, we'd be talking philosophically about the differences between us. It might be that Labour Party actually ought to just break apart. Because at the moment, it's stuck in one of its historic phases, which is it, it, it loves to disparage its victors, but pin medals on its losers. And the Labour Party is pinning another medal on another one of its losers at the moment. I'm feeling very happy about itself. Phil, can I ask you, because obviously you were uh, Tony Blair's speechwriter, you know, are you, are you, you know, you're a player and I'm sure you're still, I know you're still, you know, in touch with other big players in the new Labour um, administration, you know, are, where are we with talks? I mean, before the election, there was a lot of talks about a spin-off, a new party. Is that still going to happen? Would you, would you be part of it? I very much doubt it's going to happen. I mean, the, ele the election really killed that off, didn't it? I mean, if, you, if your party gets 40%, it seems the most bizarre moment to then talk about a new party. And that's, that is the very strongly prevailing view. I'm sure you've picked that up amongst members of parliament. So there, there are lots of things happening outside of politics for people who want to set up a new political entity in what they regard as a political centre. But there's very little happening within politics. So I think the short answer is no, that's not happening anytime soon. And we'll have to see how politics develops. Because if the Tory party goes off into the wildest shores of unreason about Europe, which it almost certainly will. And if the Labour Party's division then resurfaces two years, three years from now, then who knows whether a gap opens up. But for the moment, I don't think there's anything serious happening at all. Hi, um, I'm Harrison from Southampton. Um, I'm interested in what you guys think would happen in the event of an early election where there's another inconclusive result. Do you think if, say, the Tories were the largest party but only just, and then formed a government that could be smeared as, say, undemocratic or whatever, that Corbyn would then remain in power and could win a subsequent election? Or do you think he would be removed from, as Labour Party leader in that scenario, which to me seems relatively likely? I think if we have another early snap election, then I'm going to change career, because... <laughs> We just you're, want to, you're going to snap. Yeah, we, yeah. Um, I think, I think what, one of the really interesting things that people... Well, there were two things which were interesting about the Tory party. They put on votes in the election this year. It was just Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party put on more and narrowed the gap, and the Labour Party lost their... Uh, the Conservative Party lost their majority. But for them in the third election in a row to put on votes, although they lost seats, 
has sort of been overlooked because they lost the majority. For any party to go into the fourth general election in the row trying to win it is tough. Doing it in the middle of or towards the end of a massively complicated situation like Brexit is tough. Doing it with the current cabinet and possibly leader is even tougher. So I think there's a whole, there's a whole load of things on the sort of Tory side which make it easier for uh, the Labour Party. You know, if they just sort of sit and wait for, you know, in, in Australia, politically for them, they just want it all to go wrong because they can say, look at, this, you know, look at the state of this. Um, but I think you're right that if, if the Tories end up winning by just a little bit, essentially for the third time, if you ignore what happened in 2015, people will start to think, hang on, what's going on with our politics? I don't know whether Corbyn would survive that, though. Maybe he would. I mean, Rachel probably knows better than I do. But in the outcome you suggest, and it was close, and it was soon, I think Jeremy Corbyn would still be in sufficiently good odour with the Labour Party members to remain in place. I mean, I think if there were another slap election and followed by another hung parliament, we'd all just pack it in, yeah. frankly. Just turn the politics off. The Queen can sort it out. Yeah, let the Queen sort it out. The Queen will come back to us in two years, having tidied everything up. But I do, I do, again, I do think we're, you know, that, that there is a, there is what we're, um, the, there's a combination of things here. There's an increasing perception of Labour credibility as a par party of government, and there's an increasing erosion of credibility for the current Conservative government, which, you know, you do kind of wonder how long they can keep this up for because it is catastrophic, this level of infighting. I mean, they know that they should just put on a show of unity, right, because that would be the sensible thing to do, but they can't seem to stop themselves um, fighting. She is such a weak leader now. Um, she's lost credibility with the public and with her own MPs, including in the Cabinet. Uh, and, it's, and it's not good for the country, right? It's not good for the country to have a government that can't govern. So, you know, you do sort of wonder how long they can keep this up for, right? Mm. Ages. Mm. Ages. Well, I, I, we, we, years. We said that the day after the election that, you know, she'll have Ages. to go and she's still there. I think it's like the coalition. Everybody piled in and said it can only last for 10 minutes. And I thought, no, all the... All the logic suggests everyone involved needs it to last for five years, and, and it duly did. The logic is the same here. They need it to last, therefore they'll do everything they can to make it last. Mm. Now, of course, I can imagine the circumstances in which it blows up, but the, their very strong desire of all the warring factions in the Tory party is that it should be long rather than short. I actually disagree with that. I think uh, it's, in, it's very much in the interest of some of the well-entrenched, well-known players who fancy themselves the next leader, like Boris Johnson and David Davis, um, for there to be machinations quite soon. But that's not an um, election. That's a leadership change. Nobody is going to sure, become prime minister and then risk an election, are they? Well, I, I think it, I think it's I think it's unclear. You know, I I, I think that that possibly 10, 15 years ago that would have happened more easily, like you saw with Tony Blair to Gordon Brown. Um, partially because people saw it as such a colossal mistake of Gordon Brown's not to go to the country sooner. I think that there's now a consensus growing up around the idea that, well, you know, you don't have your own mandate if you don't, if you don't take it to the country. So I think possibly... That, we've we've just know, done an experiment in, in that thinking, which Theresa May said, oh, I need my own mandate, and, and it was a disaster. But wasn't that, that was because she ran a terrible campaign, no, not because no, it was no, a bad it wasn't. idea? No, no, it wasn't. They ran into, went into the campaign on 43%, they ended on 43%. They put on votes, as you just said a moment ago. The pivotal fact of the election was Jeremy Corbyn's appeal to a new electorate. They, they, did, not, they did run a terrible campaign, and she was exposed as not very good. But it wasn't pivotal to the outcome. 
But, but, but as, as for the, the question of, of Jeremy Corbyn and, and, and who next, I think that is a really well, interesting that was, that was what I was going to ask. We're all question. assuming that Jeremy Corbyn is the potential Labour Prime Minister that we are discussing. Is it definite that he's the one who leads the Labour Party into the next election? Well, if, you, you know, if, you're, if you're walking around you know, Brighton this week and it's suddenly inside the conference zone, I mean, go into the Labour shop. You know, if you look hard, you might be able to find you know, some old, old design T-shirt with a Labour rose on it. But everything is, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, his face, sort of hopey, changey, sort of uh, imprints of, of him on everything from mugs to tote bags, He's also a rubbish posters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, scarves. You, you saw. On scarves is now the oh, Jeremy Corbyn football scarf uh, I spotted earlier. And, and my concern, for, for, well, not concern, but, but, but thought is that Labour is really allowing and encouraging a personality cult to grow up around Corbyn. I was slightly sort of taken aback when I saw all those thousands of um, people at Glastonbury, the revellers, chanting his name. It's, it's what you think that shouldn't, you know, yes, you know, chanting for Mick Jagger, but really British politicians shouldn't be getting that kind of almost cultish devotion. So I think it is a, it's a problem for Labour that they're not allowing other people to come up through the ranks. But certainly there are people with ambitions behind the scenes. I think Angela Rayne is one to watch. Emily Thornberry, a lot of talk of her coming in as another deputy leader... Stop uh, sniggering, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and also talk of you know Labour perhaps having a, a, a woman uh, no, leader. No, no, that you know. That's not allowed. That's it does. Not allowed it does to seem do to be. It pains Labour politicians that the Conservatives can now boast two female uh, leaders and prime ministers. So ho hopefully there'll be better gender representation at top of Labour in the in the near future. Are there any more questions? No. Good. I'm going to ask you one more question. Has anybody changed their mind about whether or not they think Jeremy Corbyn's going to be prime minister? Well, what a waste of time that was. <laughs> uh, thank you so much um, uh, for joining us. It was actually really interesting. And in the run-up to this, uh, us doing this event, I've kept on changing my mind uh, about the answer to the question about can or will Jeremy Corbyn become Prime Minister. And we might, we might have a complete... I'll have a completely different view probably by Wednesday when he gives his speech. Uh, but thank you for coming. Uh, you can download this as a podcast, hopefully, uh, tomorrow morning on Acast and iTunes and all the usual places. You can sign up to the morning briefing, thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. And uh, we've got another event in Manchester next weekend. When we'll be asking the question, who will lead the Tory party next? I hope we come to a more conclusive uh, answer to uh, that one. But for now, uh, Rachel Shabby, Phil Collins, uh, Lucy Fisher and me, Matt Chorley. It's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.